Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Taiwan tensions, President Biden commits to defending the island, sparking Chinese anger. Tibet taboo, the NBA's Boston Celtics under fire in China after player comments. And default diverted, property giant Evergrande makes an overdue interest payment. It's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move this Friday and another jam-packed week passes by with President Biden on CNN fighting for his stimulus plans, Tesla grappling to meet orders for sedans, Netflix results helped by Squid Game stands, that's millennial for fans by the way, Amazon hiring an army of holiday helping hands and great news from Toyland, Mattel is meeting demands and we'll be speaking to the CEO Enon Cries later in the show. He's promising plenty of Barbies and Hot Wheels this season, even with supply chain disruptions. In other words, Christmas is not cancelled, nor is trade today on Wall Street, though I have to say price action relatively muted. Take a look at that. And the chips are down in Techland. Intel sinking after warning of slowing sales due to part shortages. It says the chip crunch won't let up until at least 2023. Wow. The chip dip means carmaker Renault will produce 50,000 fewer vehicles this year, too. It has global implications. And speaking of dips, it's mined the gap at Snap. Snapchat's parent company set to fall some 21%. Take a look at that. Warning that Apple's recent privacy changes could cook its ad sales business. Details on that coming right up. Meanwhile, green arrows in Europe, even as new numbers show business growth there at six-month lows and a pullback too in Chinese stocks. Yet Evergrande managing to make gains of some 4%. The property developer made a key overseas bond payment that, according to reports, interest has been paid and this show cannot be delayed. Let's get to the drivers. The U.S. president has vowed to defend Taiwan in the event of an attack by China. This is a departure from the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity on the matter. Take a listen to President Biden's remarks. That's why you have, you know, you hear people saying Biden wants to start a new Cold War with China. I don't want a Cold War with China. I just want to make China understand that we are not going to step back. We are not going to change any of our views. So are you China. saying that, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if yes, China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment to do that. Hmm. John Harwood joins me now. John, strong statement from the president there, very quickly walked back or at least softened by the White House. 
That's right. I don't think President Biden intended mm. to change the policy of strategic ambiguity. I think what he was trying to do was communicate strength in dealing with China. Uh, of course, under the Taiwan Relations Act, the United States is committed to assisting Taiwan in its self-defense. Uh, it's not uh, the same kind of commitment that we have, say, under NATO Article 5, when we treat an attack on any member nation as an attack on the United States. Uh, but what the president was doing at a mo moment when China is uh, intimidating Taiwan, suggesting that uh, its takeover of Taiwan is inevitable, um, uh, Biden was trying to say not so fast, uh, and we are going to be there. We're not abandoning Taiwan. Um, but the reason that uh, the White House walked it back was the very policy of strategic ambiguity that you mentioned. And of course, it follows um, some of the concerns more broadly and, of course, propaganda from China in light of the Afghanistan situation. Um, so perhaps unsurprising what we saw in both regards here. China, of course, coming straight back and saying, don't send false signals, intentional or otherwise. That's right. And I, I don't think the uh, uh, President Biden minds too much uh, hostile words mm. from the Chinese. The consistent through line of the Biden administration's foreign policy has been economically, diplomatically, militarily standing up to China and saying, you know, f fulfilling this uh, pivot to Asia that uh, was talked about during the Obama administration when Joe Biden was vice president. So you had that uh, Australia submarine deal, which was part of that uh, move. And, and uh, we see that across a range of fronts. Uh, when President Biden talks about uh, the uh, coming years as a test of the uh, resiliency and strength and effectiveness of democracy versus authoritarian regimes, He's talking largely about China, and he's trying to say, uh, even as he attempts to pass his domestic program, we have to show we can deliver for our people, uh, and uh, that's how we uh, preserve our strength uh, in the world and in the Asia-Pacific and uh, against uh, big uh, rising powers like China. Yes. I think sometimes strategic ambiguity can extend to action or inaction right. in this case. Hmm. John Howard. Thank you so much for that, as always. From Taiwan to another taboo in China, Tibet. A fresh backlash erupted against the NBA after a Boston Celtics player criticized China's president over the treatment of Tibet, as Christy Lu Stout reports. There is backlash in China after Ennis Cantor of the Boston Celtics criticized Chinese President Xi Jinping and China's treatment of Tibet. On Thursday, he shared an almost three-minute video of himself expressing support for a free Tibet while wearing a black and white T-shirt with an image of the Dalai Lama, its exiled leader. He described Chinese President Xi Jinping as a brutal dictator and said Tibetan people's basic rights and freedoms are non-existent. Cantor was immediately slammed on Chinese social media, a Weibo fan page for the Boston Celtics with over 600,000 followers posted this, quote, any information on the team will cease to appear on this Weibo. Any behavior that undermines the harmony of the nation and the dignity of the motherland, we resolutely resist, unquote. On Thursday, a Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman said Cantor was trying to get attention while adding this. We welcome all friends from various countries who are unbiased and uphold an objective stand to visit Tibet. At the same time, we will never accept attacks that discredit Tibet's development and progress. As of Friday afternoon, Celtics highlights can be found online in China.
But the counter backlash comes two years after then-Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey expressed support for the democracy movement in Hong Kong, and that prompted the state broadcaster CCTV to stop broadcasting NBA games and e-commerce sites to remove listings for Rockets merchandise. The counter controversy also comes after the Wednesday arrival of the Olympic torch in Beijing. China is hosting the Winter Games in February, a development that has prompted calls for boycotts over China's treatment of Hong Kong, Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang and Tibet. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, let's move on. Staying afloat, Chinese property giant Evergrande reportedly avoided an immediate default with just hours to spare. But its problems are far from over. Selena Wang has more. Selena, great to have you with us. Let's be clear, they were already in the 30-day grace period when they made this payment, we believe. But it does send a key signal to international bondholders that they may be way down the pecking order. But at least for now, they will get their money. Yeah, exactly, Julie. A very encouraging sign for these international investors, since prior to this, as you say, the expectation was that the first priority for Evergrande was to pay off these domestic Chinese investors. But now it appears that they're trying to appease international investors as well. But the key words here in regards to this is that at least for now, Evergrande has avoided default. According to state media, Evergrande has made an interest payment of $83.5 million on a dollar bond denom- on a dollar-denominated bond that was actually expired last month. Now, the 30-day grace period for that payment was set to expire on Saturday, tomorrow, and it was widely expected that Evergrande was going to miss that payment and tip formally into default. So this is a surprise positive development, but Evergrande is not even close to being out of the woods yet. This essentially is just buying it a little bit of time. Evergrande still has a string of payments to make on other bonds. In fact, the next major deadline to avert default is just a week away. And Julia, we still have very little clarity into how they're going to sort through their $300 billion in liabilities, how it's going to raise much needed cash, because so far they have been unsuccessful in trying to sell various assets. We were just discussing yesterday that even efforts to sell its crown jewel, its property services unit. A deal for that fell through with Hobson Development and Evergrande saying they couldn't agree to the terms of the deal. So officials in China, however, various senior officials have been trying to calm the market, saying that this Evergrande crisis can be managed, it can be controlled, but still these fears of contagion across the property sector and the broader economy continue to persist. We have several other property developers in China that have also said they're struggling to pay off their debts. Now, economists tell me this may not be China's Lehman moment, but at the very least, this could cause significant short-term pain and more importantly, is a signal of a long-term change of China's growth and economic model that in recent decades has been supercharged by debt and the property sector. Julia? Yes, a sigh of relief today. But of course, this is tiny relative to the broader issues for the property giant and the sector. As you point out, we await what happens next week now too. Selena Wang, thank you for that and have a great weekend. Okay, let's move on again. Snap, snapped. The stock plunging 20% pre-market following third quarter earnings. The firm warned that recent changes to Apple's privacy policies hurt its advertising business. Paula Monica joins us with more. Paul, it's interesting. It's not just the reaction that we saw in Snap that I found interesting, but it was also those that have warned about this too, the likes of Facebook and Twitter stock that also fell pre-market. Walk us through exactly what happened. Yeah, Snapchat. Snap is the uh, parent company of Snapchat. 
really stressing that they were caught off guard, Julia, by these iOS changes and how significant of a revenue impact they had in the quarter and that they might have going forward because of what Apple has done with regards to increased privacy controls. There are advertisers that are, I think, trying to figure out how do they now try and get their brand name across on social media platforms like Snapchat. And CEO Evan Spiegel warning that they don't know when this is going to end. They hope it's temporary and that longer term advertisers will adjust to the new Apple iOS normal. But right now, investors are panicking. Snap, as you point out, shares down about 20% pre-market. We need to point out, though, Snapchat has been one of the best performing yes. stocks in tech and media this year. Before today, the stock was up more than 50% year to date. Is this an overreaction because the stock had gone up so dramatically? Perhaps. But as you noted, Facebook and Twitter are getting hit as well. Yeah, triple digits since the beginning of uh, 2020. You have to look at that longer term chart to appreciate just how well this is done. And actually, you raise a great point, Paul, as always. It sort of overtook the underlying message from the company, which actually seemed pretty good. I mean, they saw a 23% rise year over year in daily active users. And if you look at the younger segment, which we know is sort of lucrative for these kind of social media platforms, Relative to Facebook as a platform, we'll keep Instagram aside, they're managing to add younger users too, unlike Facebook. Exactly. There are definite worries about Facebook's old problem, if you will. You know, the fact that people like me and uh, you know my parents are the ones uh, sharing uh, pictures of their kids and grandkids on uh, Facebook, but the kids themselves may not be there. Instagram obviously is trying to uh, fight back. They're owned by Facebook. But what I find fascinating, Julia, is that we're in a world right now, and I see it with my kids, TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. Everyone's talking about that social media platform. Snapchat has done extremely well, even in a world where TikTok has taken everyone by storm. So give credit to the company for adding more users, getting that uh, you know, revenue growth to be uh, you know, at a level that Wall Street likes. It's just maybe a temporary blip because of these Apple iOS changes, or maybe not, and we'll have to see. But I think Snapchat has done an admirable job of really facing tough competition and holding their own. Yeah, great point. And Paul, in my eyes, it doesn't matter where you're spreading your pictures and sharing your uh, news. You're cool in my eyes. Paul and Monica, thank you for that. (laughs) Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. There's been a tragic death on a film set in New Mexico. Authorities say the actor Alec Baldwin has fired a prop gun which killed the movie's cinematographer. The director was also injured. CNN's Stephanie Elam joins us now on this. Stephanie, I'll say it's tragic and I'll say it again. What more do we know so far? We don't have a lot of information at Mm. this point, Julia. It is truly a tragedy here. What we understand, according to the Santa Fe uh, uh, County Sheriff's Office, is that they got a call around just before 2 p.m. local time yesterday. A 911 call came in saying that there had been a shooting on the set and that they responded to the Bonanza Creek Ranch, and that is where they found two people shot. We know that the director of photography, uh, Helena Hutchins, she was airlifted to the University 
University of New Mexico Hospital, where she was pronounced dead. We also know that the director, Joel Souza, uh, he was taken by ambulance to a hospital. Still not clear yet on his uh, status, on whether or not he's in the hospital or out of the hospital. But we do have a statement that has come from the company that's behind the production of this Western uh, called Rust. It's uh, an 1880s Western. It's uh, starring Alec Baldwin. He's also a producer on it. And this is the statement that came from the production where they said the entire cast and crew has been absolutely devastated by today's tragedy. And we send our deepest condolences to Helena's family and loved ones. Uh, This is coming from The New York Times reporting this out. They are also saying that they have halted production for an undetermined time and that they're fully cooperating with this investigation and they'll be providing counseling services to everyone who was there on set. Now, as far as the sheriff's Uh, department is concerned. They're saying that the investigation is continuing. They continue to talk to witnesses and that no one has been charged in this event. But in a cruel turn of irony here, the movie that they're filming, according to imdb.com, is about a 13-year-old boy who is accused of accidentally killing a rancher, and he goes on the run with his grandfather, and that is played by Alec Baldwin. So an accidental murder playing out there, but now it looks like it's really happened here on the set. We're still looking for more information on how this firearm could have fired, what could have been inside it. Uh, Those questions we're still hoping to learn more about today, Julia. Yeah, and our hearts go out to all those involved. Stephanie Elam, thank you for that. A Haitian gang leader is threatening to kill 17 abducted U.S. and Canadian missionaries if his demands aren't met. He made the claim in a video released on Thursday. The captors have demanded $1 million per hostage. U.S. officials say they're in constant contact with the Haitian police. Queen Elizabeth II is back at Windsor Castle and will spend Friday mostly resting, according to royal sources. The Queen spent Wednesday night in hospital for what Buckingham Palace called preliminary investigations. Okay, still to come here on First Move, Child's Play. Toymaker Mattel overcomes supply snarls to stock U.S. shells with Barbies and Hot Wheels just in time for the holiday season. And speaking of Hot Wheels, the spectacular second-hand success of Mexican-used car startup Kavak. We've got the leaders of both. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. No Friday fusion on Wall Street. Flat price action for the Dow and the S&P in aggregate, but a Friday fumble in tech. As you can see, a slew of slowdown concerns there. Ad sale woes for Snap, Twitter and Facebook too. And chip shortage strains at Intel. Shares of all of these companies on track for losses. Take a look at that. Remember, IBM also fell 10% Thursday, hit by a business spending pullback in cloud. Now, rising bond yields not helping the tech picture either. U.S. government 10-year yields softer today, but they've been inching towards that 1.7 percent. European bond rates, meanwhile, that reflect the level of inflation. They're called inflation break-evens. They've risen to more than 10-year highs. That's a real concern over there, too. In the meantime, we work executives singing a Beatles tune this Friday. Maybe you can guess it. We can work it out. Yes, shares of the office sharing firm rising some 13% plus after going public in a $9 billion SPAC deal. That's a special purpose acquisition deal two years after that failed IPO attempt. The Federal Reserve, meanwhile, not ready to let it be. The U.S. Central Bank wants to get back to basics, banning officials and staff from owning direct shares of companies and individual bonds after revelations that top Fed officials were trading securities ahead 
of key policy decisions. Wow. Now, speaking of working things out, here's an early festive promise from toymaker Mattel. There will be plenty of toys under trees this holiday, quote. Good tidings for investors and their offspring, too. So confident is Mattel that the holiday season will be a happy one, but it's raised its revenue forecast, saying sales will rise 15%. And the key to its success, solving the supply chain puzzle in a way that makes it look like child's play. And joining us now is Enon Kreis. He's the CEO of Mattel. Fantastic to have you with us. Um, I think investors were braced for the worst based on these supply challenges, and um, I think you gave them beyond the best. You must be pleased with this quarter. Uh, yes, Julia, this was another strong quarter for Mattel with continued consumer demand for our products. We achieved growth and gained market share for five consecutive quarters. We expect to continue growing for the balance of the year, gain market share and have a strong holiday season, as you said. We are on track, in fact, to achieve our highest full year growth rate in decades and just raise guidance for the third uh, time this year. Our results really show that the Mattel team continues to perform at a high level and the company is on a clear path to improve profitability and accelerate uh, top line growth. I listened to the earnings call yesterday and the explanation of how you managed the supply chain. As you said, this has been a process of many quarters now, but specifically with the supply chain challenges, um, it sounded like a military operation, quite frankly, the procurement of raw materials, the shifting of production between countries, um, accessing additional port capacity and freight capacity too. Um, this was, I think, a, um, a lesson in critical path analysis. Talk us through how you manage this. Yeah, this is really where our scale, expertise and flexible model, uh, supply chain model that we restructured over the last three years, uh, is playing to our advantage um, and make, make us ready for the uh, holiday season. Uh, you know, we did anticipate short supply and longer lead times. Uh, we factored that into our planning. We took very specific uh, methodical actions. Uh, and it's really a tribute to the strength of the team and uh, the capabilities that we have uh, around the world. Uh, we were fortunate uh, to be ahead of it. Uh, it's not that we did not uh, see challenges. It's not that we were not disrupted but we were able to work through the challenges and achieve uh, such a great quarter and position the company for growth um, in, 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 in the fourth quarter. Do you think it's going to get worse, Enon? Because to your point, um, it did hurt profitability slightly in, in, terms of your, in terms of your margins. And I know the team were discussing sort of freight rate increases of around 35%, and now you're saying sort of 50% um, increases. How long do you expect this to go on for? You know, it remains volatile and hard to predict. Yeah. Uh, we continue to work closely with our retail partners in, try, in trying to meet uh, strong demand, strong demand for our product. Um, and then in spite of these challenges, we did raise guidance. We do expect uh, to continue growing for the balance of the year um, and uh, try to meet as much of the demand as we can. You raised guidance, but you were also pretty honest and said, look, you're raising prices for some of your retailers too. I know it's difficult, but do you have any sense of to what extent they are able to pass on those price increases or they're having to warehouse them themselves? You know, it's, it's something that we do very uh, thoughtfully when we raise mm. price. We always think about quality um, and value for consumers. Uh, we do expect that the combination of uh, pricing and cost savings on our side 
uh, over time will more than exceed the impact of the cost inflation um, uh, on, our, on our product. But it is something that you see worldwide, obviously not just in the toy industry, but across the board. Uh, there is inflation out there and people are trying to uh, mitigate for, uh, for that impact. But we always do that very thoughtfully and uh, have the consumer in mind. Let's talk about the exciting things. I want to talk about toys. You won the global licensing rights to the Disney and Pixar's um, Lightyear, which is, of course, the origin story of, of Buzz Lightyear in, in Toy Story. That's going to hit in 2022, I believe, and I think it's going to be very toy-friendly for you guys. That's right. We, we expanded the relationship with Disney for the Pixar movie Lightyear. It's the origin story, as we say, of, of, uh, of Buzz Lightyear, and it is expecting, expected to be very toyetic. Uh, very playful. Uh, it's going to be a great movie, and um, we expect to uh, um, enjoy that together with our fans and consumers with great product uh, and a lot of innovation around the, uh, the franchise. And um, I know you've had a long relationship with Tesla, too, and on the 15th of October, you launched a make-your-own version of the Cybertruck. I don't know whether we've got pictures of this, complete with the smashed window, of course, when they launched it and they were throwing things at the supposedly unbreakable window, and, of course, it, it, it broke. Um, 3,283 pieces, I believe. How's that selling? It's great. I mean, everything we do uh, with our partners is with that, you know, trying to be culturally relevant, timely, and uh, always with a clear uh, brand purpose. We're seeing a strong demand for our uh, vehicle category. It's, uh, in fact, our uh, Hot Wheels, uh, which is our yes. flagship brand, <laughs> is on on its way to achieve its fourth highest uh, um, uh, you know, uh, record year of sales um, wow. for four consecutive years. So it's, uh, this is a 50-plus-year-old brand that is still thriving and continuing to break its own record now on its way for the fourth uh, consecutive year. And um, top toy this Christmas, your prediction? You know, the uh, Barbie Dreamhouse is always a classic. This time we're introducing a new uh, dream house, which is going to be just incredible. We also have some great product for Hot Wheels. And uh, watch out for the Masters of the Universe, Masterverse figures, which um, are going to be a lot of fun. Masters of the Universe action. And I mean, I've talked a lot about toys, but you have a lot going on as well. You're involved in movie production as well, just to help promote some of the brands, as you said, that have been so critical for the company going forward and expanding your footprint. What can we look forward to in, in 2022? What are you most excited about? Well, we have uh, a lot of activity around the content side. We have 13 movies in development. Yes. Um, and we have uh, a lot of shows uh, on Under Mattel Television, which is also thriving. We launched eight shows this year alone. We have 13 more in production and over 30 in development. Uh, we also just recently launched the Barbie Radio in partnership with iHeartMedia and Warner Music. <laughs> and we're also expanding our digital gaming uh, activities with new gaming games that we launch, mobile games, console games. Uh, we're growing our NFT presence with different uh, digital experiences and are really looking for ways to capture the full value from our incredible catalog of uh, franchises um, in addition to what we do on the toy side of the company. This is not to promote the sale of more toys. This is in addition, this is an, an accretive business for the company in addition to what we do on the toy aisle. Yes, lots of different verticals here going on. Um 
Enon, great to chat to you. I know you're a busy man, so we will let you go. And you certainly sound it as well by that. Enon cries there, the CEO. Thank you, Julia. Always great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, the market open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The last opening bell of the week has sounded on Wall Street, and we've got a softer picture for stocks overall. Tech underperforming with the height of the tech earnings season just ahead. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet all set to report next week. The S&P chalked up its first record close since early September. On Thursday, it's on track for a third straight week of gains overall. American Express results in the meantime helping advance the bullish case for continued economic strength, even in the face of rising inflation and supply chain pressures. Amex seeing increased spending for business and entertainment. Spending at restaurants was, quote, noticeably resilient. Overall, card member spending rising almost 20 percent, as long as they're paying it back. And my next guest has turned a struggle to buy a car into Mexico's first ever unicorn. Kavak is one-stop shop for used car ownership in a market that was previously informal, limited and rife with fraud. When it comes to growth, the order of the day seems to be twice the size. Every few months has managed to double its valuation, its staff and its revenues. And the business is expanding across Latin America with rumours even of an IPO next year. Carlos Garcia Otati is the CEO of Capac, and he joins us now from Mexico City. Carlos, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I think in order to understand how and why your business is growing so dramatically, we need to understand the challenges of, of buying a car and car ownership where you began in Mexico. Talk us through it. Of course, Julia, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. It, buying or selling a car in Latin America is a real struggle. It, it, and it's very different from what you see in the in the U.S. and other markets. 90% of all transactions happen in an informal way uh, outside of the dealership. And this leads to a lot of fraud. To give you an idea, out of every transaction, out of every 10 transactions, four end up in fraud. And this fraud could be going from strategies to being killed, kidnapped, to losing a significant part of your, of your investment. I myself, you know, before I started the business, bought and sold a car and was defrauded in both processes. And that led to me to start in Kavak. And, 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 and we built a product that would basically fundamentally deal with that fraud and also deal with a typical lemon issue that you find in the used car market. But what's more important about the market in Latin America is that it's not penetrated at all. In the US, out of 10 people, seven own cars. In Latin America, it's closer to two. And the reason behind this is because all of these fraud doesn't create the confidence for the banking institutions to finance these assets. So financing right. penetration is very low. Only 5% of, car, of used cars are being financed. And, and the opportunity that we're tackling is, of course, dealing and making sure that customers don't deal with fraud, but we're, we're also providing access to financing. So what we're really excited about is putting people in cars that would not have that alternative in, in, in any other scenario and, and pushing the middle class up. Yes through financing this asset that is that is really transformational for, for, for our communities. I mean, I read that you described yourself as if Spotify, Amazon, Toyota and Citibank had a child, um, your firm would be born. So uh, modesty is not, not required. But um, I went on your website to have a look at how it works. And, and it's very interesting. I mean, you can sort of scroll over a car and see where some of the blemishes or the dents are on the car. Talk to me about how you help people understand, one, the car that they're going for, perhaps some of the challenges of the history of the car, and then the crucial part, as you mentioned, the access to finance, how you provide that and how 
people without credit history actually manage to get financing on your website or via your website? Of course. So, so the first thing that we do is that we buy every single car from peers. We don't buy cars at auction and, and we inspect every single car and make sure that that car is in a condition that we can turn around and sell it to another user. And what we do is once we buy that car, we, we recondition that car and we map every single thing about that car and put it live into our, into our application so people can have a complete transparent view onto what they're getting into. And we provide all the warrant or warranties necessary for you to buy that car. So we provide years of warranty. We provide a return policy, a seven-day return policy if you don't like the car. And that makes it very easy for somebody to come in into our application or our website and choose a car and know that they're going to buy a car that has the best price to quality relationship and that there's going to be a company there making sure that if anything goes wrong, we're there to, to stand by our, our, our product. And with that, uh, you can go also go into our application or website and apply for a loan in seconds and we'll pre-approve you a loan in a couple of minutes. And if you like your loan, you can just use it to, to, to purchase this car. But what's more important about our product is that LATAM, very different from other parts of the world, mobile penetration is really high. Yes. Uh, it's, it's actually twice as high than what you see in the US. So our main product is our application where you come in and you have this ecosystem of, of things that you can do related to your mobility and to, and to your financial health. So you, you can not only just buy a car with one click or sell a car with one click, you can do a maintenance or warranty with one click. You can mortgage your car if you need some money and you want to have your car with you, you can just mortgage it there with one click or pay your tickets, do everything you know related to your car. So what we're trying to do is build this ecosystem where you can just with one click do anything related to your car, both from a financing perspective and also from a mobility perspective. Do you have to be banked? Do you have to have a bank account in order to get credit here? Because I know this is, I mean, there's obviously far higher people in Brazil than, than other areas. But what if you don't have a bank account here, but you obviously make payments for your mobile phone, for example? Can they still get access to credit? Of course. That, that's yeah. the beauty about being backed by the car. And, and in Latin America, 80% of people are not banked. So yeah. our, our, you know, we are, we are, of course, serving, you know, everybody, every single customer, but the customer that really inspires us is that customer that has never owned a car before, that uses public transportation, that takes him a couple of hours to commute every day in, in a very unsafe environment. What we're trying to achieve is, you know, get those people that never had access to a car into a car so they can motivate themselves to improve and, and to have a better to have a better life. And and that's the customer that, you know, we, we're, we're actually excited about because it, Kawag is not only the first time that they actually buy a car, but, you know, we know that we can get them to, to improve their life just by giving them a tool that, that's such, that is so important in our regions, like a yeah. car. I mean, I, I know it's early days and you're in expansion mode, but are you profitable? Because it costs a lot of money to hire at the rate you're hiring and make sure you're getting the right people, particularly where safety is concerned on these vehicles. For sure. You, you know, we, we started in Latin America where capital was scarce. So the first few years we needed to build a sustainable business and we, and we, we run with, with, with amazing economics. It, it, we're, we're expanding heavily. You know, we're today in Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina. Uh, we're going to expand across Latin America in the next 12 months. And we're also expanding outside of Latin to other emerging markets where we believe that we face similar problems. So we have markets that are more mature, that are profitable, markets that we're just coming in that are not profitable where we're investing. Uh, but but we do run with very, with very healthy <laughs> economics. Very quickly, because I have about 10 seconds. Are you going to IPO as well? I've, I've seen rumors that you could be IPOing as early as next 
the first quarter of next year. It's, it's not a core priority for us to, to become a public company. In the long run, you know, it's going to make a lot of sense for us to evaluate these alternatives and we're evaluating everything. But right now, our core focus is on expanding our product to more users and, and making sure that you, we do a good job at that. Customers first. Carlos, great to chat to you. Thank you so much and uh, congratulations because uh, this certainly is groundbreaking. CEO of Kavak there. Great to chat to you. Thank more you. to come on First Move. See you after the break. Welcome back to First Move. As Formula One revs up for this weekend's big race here in the United States, one team wants to win the biggest competition of all, the race to be carbon neutral. Last week, Williams Racing promised its carbon footprint will be net positive by 2030. And I asked CEO Jost Capito why going green is such a high priority for the brand. We want to transform Williams Racing on the track to get more successful, but also off the track. And there, the sustainability strategy is a major part of that. Who's going to actually help you measure your footprint? And just in terms of practically how you're going to be achieving this, what's the game plan? Yeah, we, we defined various actions uh, up to the year 2030. We have various activities that we have in the company, but we also have a quite a big of land uh, in the area of the company and around where we, where we do like biodiversity stewardship. Of course, it is reducing energy consumption, using renewable energy. It's about more efficient travel for the team around the world. And it's also sustainable car design. This is on one side is the sport. On the other side, especially Williams has a long heritage of implementing Formula One technology into other industry areas. And uh, one good example is in the past that based on the Formula One aerodynamics, we worked with the supermarket chain to have more efficient fridges where you don't have the sliding doors, but having an air shield that has been developed by Formula One aerodynamicists. Um, and that reduced the energy consumption by 30% of these fridges. So as Formula One is at the pinnacle of technology, it's not just developing the more sustainable technology for the Formula One and for the cars, but the technology that gets developed also implement that and offer that to other areas of, of the industry. Yeah, I love that. I love that the innovation that takes place in Formula One can have practical use and transformative practical use actually out in the real world. And in that vein, I think it's why we all sat up when Formula One said, hey, by 2025, we're going to have 100 percent sustainable fuel. So net zero CO2 emissions, but no change in performance. What do you make of that? And do you believe that we can get there by 2025? It seems fast. Yeah, it is. You know that the Formula One and FIA, they are discussing with new engine regulations that achieve that. And I think the engine manufacturers are very interested in this. And in addition to the manufacturers who are in right now, based on this strategy and based on this effort, there are more car manufacturers are interested to join Formula One because they can show their standard of technology going forward. You said you wouldn't have taken this job uh, if you didn't think Williams could win again. How long does it take? Can you give us any sense? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I've been in motorsport since I'm three years, and this is now nearly it's sixty years. So, uh, and I'm highly competitive. <laughs> I'm highly competitive. I wouldn't go anywhere where I couldn't win. But the sustainability strategy was. Uh, at my heart as well, when I took the job, it was very important for me when I took the job, and I was very much aligned there with with uh, Doriton Capital, our the owners. Um, it, it's difficult to say what the timing is. Um, I think we moved a bit on already this year, um, more than we expected. Next yeah. year there are new regulations on the chassis, so we will everybody will have a complete new car, and then we go from there. But uh, I think we have everything in place that we can make it really to the front of a grid. When it is, it's difficult to say. It's we all we are not uh, facing in competition that ev- somebody stands still. Everything is moving, developing all the time, and we have to get ourselves in the position that we can develop faster than our competitors. And uh, I think we are on a good way to this, and it's step by step. But uh, yeah, but the year when we want to fight for the championship is quite difficult to say. I'll definitely be watching Formula One this weekend and fingers crossed we can get sustainable fuel by 2025. Okay, up next, get me out of here. Australia is lifting its travel curbs and airline Qantas is barely keeping up with the rush for flights out. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Who says food trucks have to be on land? One Dubai entrepreneur is delivering groceries to vessels on the water around the city and doing so in a sustainable way. Anna Stewart has the latest Think Big. It's like your everyday shop. Shelves packed with snacks, sunscreen, swimming goggles... But here, all hands on deck is literally the case. It's called an aquapod, and it offers everything needed for a summer day on the water in Dubai. So the big idea behind the aquapod is to bridge the gap between the onshore living, which is the living on mainland, and the offshore living, and to have a self-sustained or sustainable community out at sea. For four years, Ahmed Youssef has been building floating pods that can provide all kinds of services. This supermarket can serve customers that float through and hop aboard. Or it can deliver through an app, specially designed for customers at sea. The application itself is also customized for the marine environment and therefore the kind of address it intakes from the customer is um, their boat name, their boat number, and this is how we can find it easily at sea and fulfill the orders. Ahmed is a serial entrepreneur. He also launched a burger joint and a lounge that expands. The Aquapod lounge is expanding, which gives it 25% more space to its interior. And as you can see now, the sofas are actually stepping out of the Aquapod. When floating offshore, the pods must work off-grid. And that means on the roof, solar panels. Below deck, desalination tanks produce fresh water. And overboard, a container collects floating trash from the sea it's also safeguarding the environment. And that's what makes the aquapod a development that is completely different from a normal boat or a marine craft. According to the company, the aquapod supermarket serves up to 50 different boats on peak days. For groceries, Ahmed's sustainable pods are quite an attraction, and he has bigger plans. 
from floating homes to sports centres and entire mobile communities. He might have a reason. With a quarter of a billion in the world vulnerable to rising sea levels, self-sufficient seafaring structures could help. Getting your power sources from the sea, getting direct access to abundant water source from, from the sea, these are all very important aspects to cities that are looking to always have the capacity to find different alternatives and solutions to adapt to the ever-changing economy, environment and, uh, and developments. In the meantime, Ahmed keeps afloat and is now fishing for new customers in fresh waters. Anna Stewart, CNN. And finally, on First Move, after 18 long months of some of the strictest travel curbs in the world, Australians are more than ready to take flight. The only challenge is there aren't enough planes to take them, as yet at least. Qantas is ramping up its schedule furiously, saying the demand for seats after the restrictions lift is enormous, as Angus Watson reports. Australia's national carrier Qantas announcing Friday a ramping up of its international offering to coincide with Australia's relaxation of strict border rules that's kept the country shut off from the world since the beginning of the pandemic. As of November 1, Australians allowed to travel out of the country freely and return through Sydney without having to quarantine. That's allowed Qantas to bring back staff members laid off since the beginning of the pandemic here in Australia, bring its contingent back up to 20. 2,000 staff members based here. It's allowed it to put on new flights to places like South Africa, Fiji and Thailand through the end of this year and into 2022 and bring back its A380s now in storage in California. On Friday, Alan Joyce saying it's an end to the darkest days for Qantas. This 20 months is probably the darkest period in Qantas's 100-year history. It's meant that we've had to ground aircraft, stand down people and restructure the business. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yet to come is an announcement from the Australian government as to when tourists will be allowed to enter Australia. Of course, this new offering from Qantas can only be sustained for so long by Australians wanting to travel overseas. They're going to need some assurances soon as to when tourists can travel here too. Speaking Friday alongside Qantas CEO Alan Joyce, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said that that can only happen when thousands of Australians around the world stranded through the pandemic have had the chance to return home to Australia safely. Angus Watson, CNN, Sydney. Yeah, another sign that the economy cannot just switch back on overnight. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages shortly. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Have a wonderful weekend. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.